Well, good morning again, church. I want to begin this message today with something of a personal note that has application to this teaching time today. I just want to express my appreciation for being so warmly welcomed at College Park. Certainly the first day when my family was here with me, but in all the weeks since as I've been driving back and forth, splitting my time between Huntington and Chicago. Every time I'm here before the shelter in place and social distancing, I was really enjoying being invited to lunch meetings and small group gatherings and dinners with families. I've appreciated the words of encouragement and support these first couple months, and especially so these last few weeks when life changed for all of us. I'm really looking forward to getting back to a place where we can see each other in person again and gathering over meals and coffee. And I'm especially eager for my wife and children to experience the welcoming culture of College Park Church. I wanted to start with that word because that's what today's message is about. Gospel people are a welcoming people. Gospel people are a welcoming people. The welcome ministries or the welcoming culture of the church is so important and it affects the life and the health and the growth of the church. I think more than most of us even realize. But you could ask, what do we mean by welcome? Well, there are a number of words used in the Bible to describe and explain the welcoming dynamic of the church. One of those words is the word hospitality. We see this in a lot of verses, and our English word, hospitality, it has the same Latin root as the word hospital, which literally means a home for strangers. And the Greek word in the New Testament is a combination of two other Greek words. One word you might have heard called philos, that's one of the Greek words for love. And then there's the word xenos, which means stranger. So the Greek word philoxenoi literally means love for strangers. So a hospital is a place of healing for strangers. You know, there's a very real connection between being welcomed and being healed. So that's a good word. And so are words like acceptance and invited or being invited in. But I like the word welcome, which is another Bible word for what we're talking about today. And one reason I like it is because for one, there's fewer possible misassociations with the word welcome. Hospitality, for example, it's a great word, but to most of us, it usually means something like providing food or having a clean house, right? And acceptance can often be misunderstood in terms of giving uh, moral affirmation uh, to sin or sinful living. And inviting can sometimes be thought of as the end goal. Just invite them, get them to church, and then let the pastor take care of the rest. All I have to do is invite them. But that misses the fullness of what the scriptures talk about and teach. But these are still good words, and I'll use them interchangeably today. But another reason I like the word welcome is because of its literal meaning. You see, the word welcome comes from an old English noun, and it's a word you would use to refer to someone else. You would call them a wilkuma, a person whose arriving is pleasing or desirable. And so welcome says, your presence here with me is desirable. It pleases me. And the church, gospel people, are called to be a welcoming people. A verse I think is important um, is, is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, which the writer says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. 
And continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In this passage, we see that hospitality is certainly action, the things we do, but it's not just that. It's not just the things we do to receive someone in, but also a degree of identifying with someone, empathizing with others. The writer of Hebrews says, as if you were together with them in prison, as if you yourselves were suffering. We see the same idea in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. This is a chapter we're going to look at a little more later, but this is where Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And the idea is that we actually get down there into the mental and emotional experience with them as they rejoice or mourn. Another great passage is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. And he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, in context here, Peter's talking about what's truly important in the Christian life. And he says, above all, love each other deeply. Literally, this can be translated, have maximum love for each other. Have maximum love for each other. Because that kind of love, he says, covers over a multitude of sins. And here Peter seems to be quoting Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And the meaning is that love doesn't stir up or it doesn't broadcast sins. It doesn't make someone else's sins known to everyone else, right? And so the idea is that having maximum love for each other means we can just let things go sometimes. We don't have to make a big deal out of every infraction because love covers over a multitude of sins. So Peter says, have maximum love for each other because it just helps you get along better. And as an application of this kind of love, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, Peter knows it can be awkward, even difficult to do this. The idea of bringing people into your house with your family, loving the stranger in this way, you know, that might be nerve inducing or uh, it might sound like something you don't think you'd enjoy. It's like you're bringing them in to be a part of your family. But remember, when we're talking about fellow believers, you already are a family. You're already in the same household. So it's time to get to know each other better and love the stranger who also belongs to Jesus. So we can see that welcoming or hospitality is about so much more than food trays and clean bathrooms. It's more about, it's more than opening a door and handing a bulletin to someone. It's about starting a journey with people, a journey of Christian community one that they can begin to be drawn into right away because of how they're loved and told your presence here is pleasing. Back to our terminology for a moment. I like the word welcome for a lot of reasons, but there's a particular sense it does seem to be missing unless we're intentional. You see, the scriptures have a lot to say about being a welcoming people. And many of those verses and passages are focused outward. And I'm going to save that for a later series. But There are just as many passages that are focused inward into the body of Christ on our relationships with each other that use the language of welcoming and hospitality. Welcoming and hospitality are not just the church focused outward to those far from God, but also focused on each other. One could even say that to be a community that welcomes others, we first have to be a community that welcomes one another. So for the rest of our time today, we're going to look at the dynamics of welcoming that point inward. And to do that together, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 12, a short section, just verses 9 through 13. 
And so in Romans 12, 9 through 13, Paul says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor, your, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So when we talk about welcoming one another, we're really talking about the kind of community that God has created us for, the kind that he's called us to and that he's made possible by Jesus. And the scriptures have a lot to say about it. One passage I think is important is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. And in the previous verses, Paul says Jesus lived and died for others. So now we who are in Christ, we live for others too. But here's how we do that. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So we endeavor every day to hold on to our new identity belonging to Jesus. And that's hard enough. And we have to take care to not identify each other as anything other than the sons and daughters of God fully accepted by him. Learning to see ourselves as new creations, people who are saved and on the road of redemption can be hard. And it's something we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. But I would argue that learning to see each other as new creations can be just as difficult, if not more so. And one could argue that we need even more help from the Holy Spirit to do that. We don't regard each other from a worldly point of view each other but at, anymore, but as new creations. The old is gone. The new is here. Let's see each other that way. Back in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul says, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Now, I want to camp out on that idea for a few minutes. Now, I know I'm including a little more Greek language in this message today than I, I normally do or I normally would, but I think this is important. In your Bible, the word is sincere. Love must be sincere. Some translations say love must be genuine. One translation says, don't just pretend to love others. But the most accurate translation is probably the ones that say, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Here's the word on the screen in Greek and the English representation. So listen to the word. I'm going to say it. Anupakritos. Anupakritos is the word he uses there. And so the, the part of that word, upakritos, is where we get the word hypocrite from. And the first two letters, the A-N, is the negation. It's similar to anti, um, only it's just A-N here. And so that word, anupakritos, upakritos was used in theater, in the theater world, in, in play acting. Someone who wears a mask and plays a part on stage is called the hypocrite, right? And so is that actor actually the person they are portraying with the mask? No. Well, at least probably not. I was once told when I played the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz that I was typecast. You know, if I only had a brain. Anyway. But usually the actor isn't really the person they are portraying. They're pretending. They're playing a role. They're intentionally making the audience believe something about themselves that's not true. And so Paul says love must be without hypocrisy. 
without masks. And then he goes on to spell out what that looks like in the rest of these verses. He says, be devoted to one another, honor one another, keep your spiritual fervor, be joyful in hope, patient, faithful, share with one another and practice hospitality. You see, all of this describes the depth of community that God desires for us. But unfortunately, it's something that many of us have ever experienced. Instead, we keep playing the part. We keep wearing our masks, acting in the play of life, even within the church. The picture of community that we get from the New Testament is one where relationships push past the surface level of information. This is the superficial level where we're at least willing to share mere facts about ourselves, like our career or where we grew up or biographical information. But in Christian community, we push past that and down to the level of opinion and perspective. This is the point where we feel comfortable taking, uh, talking about things like politics or the economy, things like that, that have a little more opinion and emotion behind them. But in Christian community, we don't stop there. We push down through that level into a level of relational vulnerability. And this is where our real selves come to the surface. And it can often be awkward and even difficult because now we're in the realm of emotions and the things that affect us deeply, the things that we worry about, the things that keep us up at night, our desires and dreams for life and for our families, even our particular struggles with sin and holiness. But so many of us are scared out of our minds to go to that level, either because our culture conditions us to keep up an act of strength or because our sin and pride keeps us hiding who we are. We don't like the word vulnerable, and we think showing our emotions makes us look weak. But when we do go there, when we push down through the discomfort of getting there with just a few other people, when we get to this sacred and rare place of community and friendship where we can be our true selves, when we get to this place where just a few other Christians know us in their real ways, and then despite that, they accept us in grace as God has done in Christ, it creates this place of trust that the Holy Spirit uses to do some amazing things in our lives. It's in that sacred space of vulnerable, uh, relational vulnerability that the Holy Spirit uses those few other people to speak truth into our lives, sometimes healing and encouraging truth, sometimes hard and corrective truth. But it's in that place that because of your relationship, you receive it as nothing other than, than true and true friendship and love. So when we talk about welcoming one another, this is really at the core welcoming one another into these kinds of life-on-life relationships, the kind that are characterized by devotion and honor and spiritual fervor and joy and patience and sharing the things that Paul mentions in Romans 12. And when you consider Jesus' life and teaching and death and victory, isn't this what he accomplished for us? I mean, he came to put an end to all of the superstitious thinking about God, the tribal and mystical thinking about who God is, all the cliches and the old wives' tales about who he is and how faith works. Jesus came to reveal the heart and the will of the Father. His message was one of God's love for humanity, all his parables about, seeking, about God seeking after us and not pushing us away, drawing us into his presence, seeking and saving the lost, offering abundant life. Jesus came to tell us the truth about things like faith and hope and grace and and justice and love. 
And Jesus himself was an example of relational vulnerability. I mean, just think about it. He stood at Lazarus' tomb and, and he was sorrowful and he wept. He showed exhaustion in his life and ministry, but also happiness in the success of their ministry and the spread of the word. He showed anger at hypocrisy. He showed disgust at greed and racism and mistreatment of the poor. He had compassion for the lost and the downtrodden, frustration with his disciples, but also empathy for their pain and for that of others. And he showed agony, anxiety, pain, and shame in the face of his own suffering on the cross. Jesus was an emotionally vulnerable man. And didn't he endure that suffering so that we could respond in love and faith and honesty about our own sin? Didn't he become vulnerable to draw us into a vulnerable relationship with him? That's what Jesus did for us. And also so we can live that kind of life together as his church. And in doing so, be a light to the world, the prime testimony for the power of God and his grace and his goodness at work in the world today. But getting there is hard. We don't just drift into this. It takes a great degree of self-giving to the community of the church, of the gospel people. And I think here in, in Romans 12, there are three ways in particular that are reinforced by Paul's words. Being in community in this way takes self-giving in terms of our time. Paul says, be devoted to one another and practice hospitality. Well, both of these require time. It takes time. You just have to commit the time. There's no way around it. You know, one time at another church I served, there was a woman who left the church to go to another church, and we found out about it. And so I, I did an over-the-phone exit interview with her. I wasn't trying to talk her into coming back, but I, you know, it's good for leaders to know why people leave the church, and maybe it gives us something to think about. But she said on the phone, what, what a lot of people say, that she was having a hard time getting connected and forming relationships. And I thought this was odd because I knew that she'd been at the church for over 10 years. So then I went into our database and I discovered that she hadn't been in any kind of group in, well, ever, ever. She'd never joined any kind of smaller community within the larger community of the church. No small groups, no Sunday school class, no discipleship group, nothing. And then I pulled up our photo directory to make sure I was thinking about the right person, and I immediately recognized her. You see, as the worship pastor at that church, I had a, an acute awareness of the people who were always late to the worship service and the people who left at the earliest possible moment, usually during the closing prayer of the sermon or the, the final song, and she was one of them. And I didn't do this, but I wanted to call her back. I, I, just to be clear, I didn't do this, but I wanted to call her back and, and say, well, no wonder you didn't feel connected. You've never been in a group. You come late to service. You leave as quickly as you can. So you never even have the opportunity to talk to anyone. But she, and so she wasn't willing to commit the time it takes to be and to live in community. Maybe she thought it was everyone else's responsibility to pursue her. I don't know. So do you feel this way? Do you feel like you attend church every week with a bunch of strangers have you been at your church for years and you barely know anyone? Well, it's time to give of yourself in terms of your time. Commit to a group or a class of some kind. And just one, you don't just one group. You don't have to go joining everything that's available. And maybe find a place to serve as well. That's a great way to get to know others, to be on a team of some kind and serve along with somebody. So being in community 
in this way takes self-giving in terms of our time, but it also takes self-giving in terms of our transparency, our time and now our transparency. Paul says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And remember, this is, this is all an application of authentic love for one another. So sharing our joys and our hopes and our afflictions, our pains in authentic ways is part of the Christian experience of loving one another. But even before that, Paul says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Again, as an application of loving each other, Paul is saying, you together, work together, help each other hate what is evil, help each other cling to what is good. You know, we, we all need help hating what is evil. And let's not presume that Paul here is speaking about the evils of society, like injustice and racism and corruption. These are things we should stand up against. But in the previous verses of this chapter, Paul is focusing on the inward person. He talks about us being living sacrifices, renewing our minds. He addresses pride and he gives direction on how to serve each other with our spiritual gifts. So by the time we get to these, ver these verses, the context is the, the evil that we hate is the evil within. Our sin, our pride, our own shortcomings, and the good we cling to is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we pursue holiness and grow in Christ-likeness and serve one another. And so Paul says, you have to help each other do that. This is the point where we have to actually and intentionally choose to love one another and trust one another. In doing so, we come to a place of true community where, again, we can be our true selves and we can put ourselves in a position to be known and accepted and then also accountable and challenged. It's at that point that we can partner with the Holy Spirit to do that great work in each other's lives as disciples, whether it be facing and overcoming sin, seeking God's wisdom and leading in the direction and the decisions of life, uh, cultivating spiritual disciplines to grow in our faith, rejoicing in accomplishments and giving praise and recognition to God together, or even walking through the hardest moments of life together. But see, none of this is readily available to any of us apart from taking the time to be in community and letting ourselves be known by others in the practice of transparency. Many of us are so accustomed to wearing those masks and we have a hard time taking them off. And if you think about it, we, we spend much of our lives making ourselves look as good as possible. Our resumes, our websites, our social media accounts, they're all curated to make us look our best. You know, when we have people over to our house, it's one thing to clean up, but most of us don't stop there. In my family, we call it making the fake house. Oh, we have people coming over. Let's make the fake house. And I'm not saying that we need to leave the mess on the floor so as to practice vulnerability. I'm just saying that all of this adds up to a curated lifestyle that makes its way into our personal relationships, even with other believers. True love and community, though, is one where we take the masks off, and as Paul says, love must be without hypocrisy. So being in self-community takes self-giving in terms of our time and our transparency, but it also takes self-giving in terms of our tolerance, in terms of our tolerance. Now, I want to be clear when I say tolerance, I mean the truly biblical notion of tolerance, not the idea promoted in our culture today that calls that we affirm every perspective, even if they're conflicting. The Bible idea of tolerance is really one of patience 
and forbearance. But I'm a preacher and I had to choose three words that started with the letter T. So you get tolerance, right? But there's this notion of, of patience and forbearance of self-restraint in bearing with one another, self-restraint. Paul says, love one another. And in doing so, honor one another above yourselves. Since love is to be sincere, since love is at the core, bear with one another. Show patience, show kindness. Sometimes we have to just bite our tongue. Maybe you're in a place in life where you think other people's afflictions just aren't as bad as yours. And you're bothered when they uh, make prayer requests about their life and, and you know, you want to you wanna roll your eyes about their struggles. Maybe there's something about another person's personality that rubs you the wrong way. But Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. Do this because your love is real. You know, when I find myself in a position with someone who is hard for me to love, I try to remember that I was hard to love at one point too. Maybe I still am by some people, but I certainly was by the Lord. And it took his infinite patience, his forbearance, his tolerance to draw me in. And I'm reminded of the strong words of um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, which says, we love because he first loved us. And whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. Failure to love each other it, can, it, ca it casts doubt on our faith by other brothers and sisters, but even the world who is, they're watching. And I'm also reminded of Romans chapter two, verse four, where Paul says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, God's very kindness and patience is part of what gets us to repentance in the first place. And we can do this for each other as well. You know, some of the most repentant moments I've had in my life have come not from someone scorning and shaming me, but from someone loving me, forbearing with me and being tolerant. And let's be real. Living in the kind of community, uh, one where we take the time to be transparent with others, it can be a challenge sometimes. It can be awkward. It can feel embarrassing or even shameful when we confess sin to one another. But we have the opportunity and even the calling to bear one another's burdens. Well, truly wrestling with our sin and the implications of the gospel is a burdensome journey for all of us. You know, this kind of community, the one that lets you put it all out there with just a few other people without fear of guilt or shame or condemnation, it really is one of the church's greatest gifts to the world. It's not something we do naturally as humans, but Jesus has drawn us into that and given us the model for that and shown vulnerability himself and made it possible for us to live there together. This is the kind of community where the members invite and welcome each other into love without hypocrisy, without masks and pretense. In this community, we help each other recognize and overcome our sin and strive for the good things to which God calls us. There's accountability and encouragement. In this community, there's a devotion and an honor that we show each other that gives each of us an intense sense of belonging. We have a united identity. 
This is a community where the members are excited about each other for our shared faith and mission and for the work and ministry the Lord has set out for us. There's a real sense of partnership. This is a community where our joys and afflictions are recognized and prayed over and celebrated and mourned together. We don't hide from the hard stuff or the painful stuff. And it's a community where we share with one another. We share ourselves. We share our time. We share even our possessions. And this is a community where we look at one another and we say, your presence here and with me is pleasing. You know, if the church had this kind of community consistently, just think how attractive that would be to people who are far from God. Maybe some of you today are tuning into this worship experience and you're hearing all of this about community and what the church is. Maybe this is something you've never experienced and it's intriguing to you. Maybe it's even an exciting idea and you're wondering, how can I be part of that? What does it look like for me and my family to discover these great truths about belonging and connection? And you're asking, well, where do I start? Well, I want to encourage you today that it all starts with Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible in the first place. His sacrifice, his life, his teaching, his resurrection that we're going to celebrate next Sunday, all of it served to reestablish relationship and connection between us and God. And it also serves to make possible this kind of relationship and connection with each other. What created the distance or the severing of our relationship with God is what we call sin. Every person has it. We all struggle with it and we will until the day we die. But see, Jesus came to answer that problem, the problem of sin separating us from God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for all sin for all time. And so those of us who believe in his sacrifice and believe he's now our Lord and master, we receive the benefits of his sacrifice, but also his victory over death when he rose from the dead. God looks at us and says, not guilty. That one's not guilty. The effect of sin and the penalty of sin no longer stands between us and God. There's nothing in the way. So you can come to him today, right there in your own home. And you can do that by just recognizing your need for Jesus. You can pray and tell him that you need his sacrifice to answer for your sin as well. He's already offering it. There are two verses from the Bible I want to share with you today. One's very well known. You might even know it. It comes from uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, John three sixteen, And it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And also in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, Paul, the writer Paul says this, he says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no magic to it. There's no secret formula. It really is truly believing in Jesus' resurrection and his authority over your life, giving yourself to him. He's already done the work to overcome sin, to overcome the penalty for sin. That's his grace, his free gift that's given to us. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. You can't get there by your own effort. Your part is to believe it and receive it. And our hope is that you would do that today. And then the community that awaits you in the body of Christ is something amazing that you'll enjoy the rest of your days and into eternity. If you want to talk about it, 
please reach out to us here at College Park. Visit our website. Look me up on the staff page. Send me an email and we'll get that conversation going. I would love to talk to you more about Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your son, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost, to serve each of us, not to be served, that he came to show us your heart and your vision for humanity and for our relationship and eternity with you, for abundant life now and abundant life into eternity. We thank you that Jesus himself lived a life of vulnerability, an example of how we can give to one another. We see how he spent time with his followers, with his friends. We see how he was transparent with them and and showed them his heart, his emotions, his feelings. He shared his mind. And we also see how he he tolerated the disciples and their their wandering and questioning and and, uh, them taking so long to realize really who he is and what he came to do. And Lord, we know that your compassion extends to us today, that you're patient, that it's your will that all people would come to know you. And so we thank you for your compassion and your patience and your love, which has never worn a mask with us. God, we pray that you would guide those of us who are asking questions, who are seeking truth, who are seeking belonging. Many of us are living lives now in our, in our current climate where we're separated, we're isolated, we don't have much connection. Some of us are realizing that we don't really have that much community in our life. And it makes us sad. It makes us hurt. Lord, I pray that you would help the church be the church you called us to be in this time, that we can continue to connect even if we can't get together, that we can still pursue spiritual friendships and that we can draw others into life and conversations with each other in the ways that are available to us now. And Lord, we keep praying for our country. We keep praying, Lord, that you would overcome this crisis, that you would give our leaders wisdom, Lord, that you would would reign over our day and that we would see your hand at work in our country. And Lord, call your church to action as we serve, as we love, as we serve one another, and as we reach into our communities. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.